Blog Talk Radio. edition today is saturday september the 8th I want to thank you all for listening live or however you want to listen to the show um i am your host john rob so thank you however wherever whenever you listen to the show of course you can always subscribe to us on itunes by just going there and searching um and we're on many other podcast sites so you can find us out of course uh all of our shows are brought to you by kensington books so please make sure you visit kensington books for more information on their authors and their books and everything that they have going on. Uh, and also the magazine will be out uh, coming up. The next issue is going to be coming out here oh, probably in about another month, but we just released the last one uh, in the, the beginning of August, so you want to check out Suspense Magazine if you have any questions, and you know we have all the reviews and everything up online for that. We're very excited to have a wonderful show today, two authors that um, – uh, Right and right, going to have very unique, different styles uh, today. Uh, their books. First, we're going to be talking with author Marty Ambrose, and her book is out, and it is called Claire's Last Secret: Historical Mystery, taking you back into the 1800s. Uh, to talk about that, and then we are going to be joined by uh, author Eric C. Anderson. He's going to be talking about the second book in his series called Anubis. Uh, the first book was called Osiris. So two kind of very unique, uh, distinctive writing styles here. Very good that we're able to see the different kind of perspectives that uh, these authors are going to bring. So without any further ado, let's jump right in here to our first guest. Again, she is author Marty Ambrose, and her latest book is called Claire's Last Secret. So, Marty, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, John. (laughs) Yeah, so... We want to welcome you to the show. Very excited to see the book. I'm very, I've, I'm, I very much love historical fiction. Love going back in okay. time to be able to, you know, read uh, those stories. The one thing that I think I like the most about when I go back in time is, is the no technology part of, of books. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have the cell phones. You don't have the internet. You don't have all those things. You know, when you kind of go back in time to, to kind of, uh, you know, you get to rehash the the interaction between people. So give everybody a little taste about what you got going on in your book, Claire's Last Secret. Okay, yeah, I'd love to. Um, Well, Claire's Last Secret, I have to say first, I've always been a real, um, really interested in the Byron Shelley circle. It's been kind of a, uh, I've done a lot of scholarship in that, but it's the first fiction work. And this is, this year is the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's uh, publication. And so a couple years ago, I got the idea I wanted to write about the haunted summer when Mary Shelley, Byron uh, Shelley, and Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, all came together in Geneva telling ghost stories. But I told it from the perspective of Claire Claremont. And she outlived the members of that group by several decades. So she tells the story from 1873 when she's in Florence, and then part of the book goes back to the 1816 during the haunted summer, and then there's a little bit of mystery thrown in. So it's kind of a fictional memoir. But when I got 200 years, I can't believe it's been 200 years since uh, since that book has come out. And 
and I think that we and I think they're redoing something about that book. Um, if I remember right, I think I just saw the publisher send us something, and I'm not sure what it is, but it was like, a, but but it was I was like, oh wow, are, are they rewriting it or something? But I had no idea it was 200 years. But when you're when you're having to go back and you know look at that history and kind of write a fictional story related to it, what's one of the challenges and what's one of the um, not, not just the challenges, but what's one of the, uh, the the things that you know lights you up uh, also when you're kind of writing a book like this? Uh, I think I might talk about the light up first. It's just the the characters were real, and they're so much they're so larger than life. Uh, you know, we kind of see them through this lens of history now, and you know, there's Byron who had this rock star kind of life, and Shelley and Mary Shelley and Claire, and so they are just these still like really powerful presences and everything about their lives is really just fascinating. Um, now the challenge of that, there were to me kind of two challenges is one, you have to kind of pick and choose what pieces you want to use in the book that actually like develop the plot. And two, a lot of that summer, that haunted summer of 1816 they were really spending a lot of time sailing, uh, reading, sort of sightseeing, you know, telling ghost stories. So you have to sort of pick out things that actually would work in a um, a book plot and, you know, kind of delve into the letters. And they do all, like, remember things differently. So, like, Byron might say something in a letter Claire, Mary, and then you have to kind of decide, well, whose version am I going to really use in my book? Because they, they do kind of vary a bit. So that was kind of a challenge, too. Mm-hmm. Now, what, 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 was the, what was the draw what was the, to, to get you to kind of, you know, want to sit down and kind of write this book? Well, I have to tell you what happened was uh, it was in – um, 2015 was when I really got the idea for the book, and I had had a, a, a really bad sports injury, and I was sort of stuck in the house till I had the back surgery, and I was rereading this book by um, called The Young Romantics, and it was the first time I saw Claire Claremont had written a journal, and there was a little fragment of it where she said something like, you know, that summer of love in 1816, it didn't work out so well for me. And I thought, hmm. And then that was the first time I read that she actually lived at 82 in Florence. And I thought, gosh, what would that be like to be the only one left behind? And how would you remember things? How would you, and their reputations grew and grew, and she kind of moved into obscurity. So that was kind of the impetus for it. And I thought, how would she remember? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, when you start getting involved and, in, you know, and trying to answer character questions and trying to answer questions for yourself, you know, not only do you find answers sometimes, but you always find, you know, more questions that always kind of pop up. What what were your characters like? You know, what were they during the evolution of, of kind of the book? I mean, did they surprise you or were they loud? Were they kind of quiet? You kind of have to push them <laughs> along. How was that dynamic? You know what? I I think, again, because they're such big – that is such a great question. They're such big figures in the literary world, and I think – some things you have to really watch because Byron is such an overpowering presence. Everybody talks about him. Everybody sees him in a certain way. He's like the the rock star of romanticism. So to kind of get to those quieter moments of Byron that, you know, he's at this time he's living in exile from England and there's this kind of lonely man behind that, you know, showman's persona And then, you know, how you see the human side of, like, Mary Shelley and Shelley. And that really, to me, came a lot from the letters. So I did a lot of reading in their letters. And they're all very witty and very detailed about what happened. But then there's, like, gaps, too. So you have to kind of fill in the blanks and then rumors. Like, there was a rumor that Claire had had an affair with Shelley. Well, that was never proven, 
but it was talked about and it's still talked about a lot in the literary world. So then I have to make a decision as an author, how do I see that? Right, and that's when the wheels can get turning because you can have a lot of fun with it. There's many different maybe like directions you can kind of go with that too, depending on how far you you know kind of wanted to keep keep that keep that alive or you know kind of rehash that that rumor back up yeah and i did I did touch on that in the book. Um, I sort of have no, but she certainly discusses it, and then you know they they were young, it was a a sort of kind of interestingly charged summer so there were a lot of you know sort of interrelations that I think in some ways are kind of ambiguous so I sort of hint at things but um, that was that was kind of an interesting part of the book yeah and (laughs) when when you're looking at like the character creation too of like the secondary characters and having to kind of bring everything kind of together what was one of the, I guess, you know, the aspects or personalities that, that you kind of wanted to make sure that you kind of had in your characters? Are they going to kind of see a consistency, um, uh, maybe join together emotionally or some other way mm. that, that you've kind of written? Oh, that's, that is fabulous. I think with Claire Claremont, because she's the one who is narrating the story, and she's an older woman in 1873 and she's 17 in 1816. So there's, there are these two parts of her life, but the thread that kind of connects it is she was a very passionate, very independent woman. She really lived on her own almost all of her life. She lived in England. She lived in Italy, Germany. She was a governess in Tsarist Russia so when I was kind of developing her character as the narrator, it was looking at all specs that are kind of consistent and that she was a very unconventional person. And so I have that kind of threaded through uh, in a way, you know, kind of more of a feminist than actually Mary Shelley was. So I kept that thread going through the book that in a way she was very modern. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but – we're talking, you know, 200 years ago. There wasn't a lot of modern, and that's what I was talking about at the beginning. Is you know, I love the, I love the feeling that you know, you you can't. I think I think in today's day and age, I think too many authors aren't as original as they used to be because they have technology as a crutch to always fall back on. I see that in TV shows, see that in writing. I think you see it all over. But when you're writing from a time that doesn't have those kind of crutches, that alone is a challenge. That because you know you're you're writing about a time when you know you weren't you weren't living. I mean, no people reading this book were not alive during that time. So you're having to bring that alive and, and together. But again, you're having to do it without the use of technology and, and without all those things. So talk a little bit about you know that challenge and, and having to write again about a subject matter or, or a time with when it's its own setting, but you have to bring it alive when and make you know and make people think that they're living in that area. Well, that is challenging. I will say that. And but it is something that's that is so interesting that does kind of attract me as well because so much of their communication is through letters or and these letters would take days and days to actually arrive or it's through conversation or it's through sketchbooks. So in the book, I have like several different aspects where I wanted to kind of overlayer these realities where you have like a letter or you have uh, a ladies' gazette or you have a smaller narrator, like trying to create that whole mosaic of what it was like in 1816. And that really is challenging because in many ways they lived quieter lives they lived more isolated lives. Um, their communication was much more limited, but they spent a whole lot of time reading, reflecting, and I think that sort of led to a, a kind of huge creativity where you have, and you probably know the, the famous story where Byron sort of says, let's all tell a ghost story. And Mary Shelley has this dream of a student creating what she calls an unhallowed life, and that was the beginning of Frankenstein. 
Oh yeah, that's right. But yeah. it, it didn't come out of a text message, and it didn't. It came out no. of a, a conversation they had at Byron's villa, where they're telling ghost stories to scare each other. And so it. I think that in itself, you go back to that time, and you think, what a fascinating thing to get this idea of this story. And she's seventeen. That no one has ever written before. It's been made into 120 different films. Uh, Frankenstein's enduring book, and even the legend of the four of them. Um, so I, I agree. I don't know that you could have that kind of creativity today in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think. I don't think you could either. I, I don't think you could either. I, I, I do. I mean, it's, I, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can see where you're going. I, I can I can understand where where you're going because mm-hmm. it it would be a very difficult dynamic in today's because like you I mean because back then people actually had to talk face to face. It wasn't yes. uh, you knew the context, you knew the emotion, you could see people's faces and body language and things. You don't get that in text messages or emails or even on the phone at times. So it, yeah. it does make for an author having to really talk about you know body languages and things like that and if they're not in the room together they don't know what each other is thinking at that time where of course today yeah. you can you know that's that, that's a much different situation <laughs> absolutely yeah. and i i think one thing um i was going to add about that that's more of the the technology aspect today for the 200th anniversary, this may have been what you saw, they're doing a, a global Frankenreads project. So all over the world, people are posting projects they're doing, either plays of Frankenstein, discussions, readings, and the fact that this book is being utilized like that all over the world, I guess maybe is our strength, that we can kind of pull uh, I think it's in like 40 or 50 different countries where people are all focused on this one book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now this is, of course, when people go to your website, martyambrose.com, and again, I want to remind everybody that the book is called Claire's Last okay. Secret. It's available now. Mm-hmm. But when people go, they're going to notice that, you know, you, you've written many mystery books before, but nothing at all like what you have here in Claire's Law <laughs> Secret. So is is this the kind of genre that you're going to stay in, more of the historical fiction mystery, or are you going to kind of maybe go back into, um, you, you know, more of the modern, you know, mystery series like The Killer Fool and The Island Intrigue and Peril and Paradise books that you have? Well, that is so nice to ask. You know what? I am rooted in this now. I I – it's probably what I've always wanted to do. And I don't know that I was ready to write this kind of book. It's, for me, it was probably 10 times more difficult. And it, it took me a whole year even to write the manuscript. And, but it's my great love because I can use my love of the romantics, uh, all of this together and research and um, we're going back to Italy to work on book two. And so I'm like, I get to do actual research in, in Italy. And so that's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, but the historical part, I know it was. And when I did the research for the first book, um, part of it takes place at Castle Chillon in Geneva. And that's where Byron and Shelley visited. And again, they were having celebrations all through the summer because it was the anniversary of the summer, uh, 200, summer of 16. And so when I walked in, there's all of the Byron Shelley memorabilia, and it was they had a Byron vintage. They really liked um, the whole city was kind of caught up in this. So that part, to me, I, I'm loving this. This is where I am as a writer now. It's great. So you're going to be so so this, so this is the area you're going to be in. You're going to be into that historical historical area uh, more than yeah. And and now when you Absolutely. say going to Italy, when you say going to Italy, um, what kind of setting 
you know, are we going to be looking at? Well, the, this book is um, the first in the trilogy. So, oh, okay. A, yeah, it's a trilogy. It's called The Dark and Faith. And uh, it um, starts where this one ends. And uh, so it takes place in, again, 1873. But this one kind of goes back to Byron's time in Ravenna, Italy, when he was fighting with what's called the Carbonari. They were revolutionaries. And so book two has a lot more of uh, kind of that action energy as uh, Claire's trying to discover the secret about whether her daughter with Byron ever truly did die. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the mystery. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> when, so, now, so, so now that you've kind of dropped down, because I, I, I didn't realize that this was a trilogy, so yeah. you kind of so you kind of had to build this series now um as you know so book 1 was a setup so you you you've kind of had to build book 1 into 2 and then into 3 so you kind of already kind of have the series kind of laid out in a way that you already know it's going to be three books however did your mind almost change when you were kind of writing the first one going I don't know I, maybe I have to do more than three, or the, you know, were you kind of fluctuating back and forth, or is it still focused that okay, I can get this done in three, and it, and it, and and that's what I'm going to do. I think I well, I actually started this out as as a, seeing it as a standalone, and then I thought, no, this story is bigger, and then I I thought, okay, this is going to be a trilogy because it's going to take three books to do this, and then I get to spend three books with uh, Byron, Shelley, Claire, and Mary. And um, so I I thought that's going to be a great little tie-up as a trilogy. So, yeah, I kind of – I think it's just going to be three. So it's just going to be three. So so nothing Mm -hmm. really – okay, so so then nothing kind of changed your mind a little bit to say it could be more or any kind of – okay. Because, you know – when, because when you think trilogies, the second book is the explosiveness. The first book is a lot of the setup and going. The second book is the yeah. explosiveness and and turns things on its heels. And then the third book, of course, is the bring together of all that explosiveness that you just did and puts it all into a nice tidy little package. Um, <laughs> but you know, when, when you're thinking of kind of two, you know, when when you're doing more creation of like the villains and you know the bad guys and and and, and books. What kind of personalities do, do you like to see when you're reading other people's works that you kind of like to incorporate into your own kind of villains? What kind of personality traits do you really shoot for? I think for me, I, I liked, and this is sort of in, um, in mine, the people that you think are the villains really aren't. And the ones who you think aren't really are. And I like villains that are extremely sneaky, that they, they appear to be like your best friend, your nice neighbor, the per- and yet they have like a secret life. And I'm always sort of interested in like what's behind that door. Okay. Um, what, what are you hiding in that room? And that's kind of the thing I like a lot. Like and what so skeleton's going to fall out of the closet. You bet. That's what I want yeah. to see. And that, that to me, is always intriguing what people hide. That, I mean, yeah, so you, you, so you kind of mm-hmm. have them back in the shadows a little bit, and then you kind of like to bring them kind mm-hmm. of out, like out of the closet. Yeah, I understand Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, again, so, so we already know kind of going forward that, you know, this, that this is definitely going to be a trilogy. But – yeah. Outside of that, I mean, do you still have, do you have any kind of other kind of stories or anything that are kind of inside you that you think that you might let out after, you know, after this comes, after this, after this trilogy is over? Oh, yeah. You know what? I, I really decided I wanted to stay with historical memoir mystery. It's really kind of genre bending, which I love doing that. It's got all kinds of different elements. So there's a character in the first book, uh, William Michael Rossetti, who, was, uh, again, did come to Florence in the 1870s to buy Claire's Byron letters. 
where I'm going to go after this trilogy is I'm picking up on the Rossetti family. They were involved, uh, Christina Rossetti, the poet, Dante Gabriel, the artist. And this has to do with kind of, again, a, a sort of Italian conspiracy. So I decided after this I'm going to go in that direction and do something with them because I've always kind of found them really fascinating. Gotcha. So yeah. the best place for people to find out about you is, of course, to go to your website, MartyAmbrose.com, uh, for more information. But did, what, what's your social media? Uh, do you do any events? Can people shake your hand? Do you do a lot of signings? Do you kind of go out to conferences? Absolutely. You know what? I'm at BosherCon right now. Um, oh, I'm you're at BosherCon. Yeah, yes, I am. And it, uh, it's amazing. Um I do, yeah, I've got Facebook, I'm on um, my website, and I have listed the signings I'm going to be doing. I've got probably about half a dozen signings. We're doing, uh, you know, book signings, book launches. The big thing I'm doing um, in two weeks, the Italy research trip is I'm launching with the Women's Fiction Festival in Matera, Italy, so I'm, this is like a whole new thing for me. So um, doing a little bit more internationally. So that's, uh, but absolutely, I'm on there a lot. <laughs> I like it. So you like, do you like the interaction? Because uh, some authors aren't, you know, big interaction with fans face-to-face. Like they'll do things online and email and whatnot. Are you a, are you a big face-to-face interactioner? I am. I love it. You know what? I think it's just years of, I taught English at a, still do at a a college and it's like being with my students. Uh, You know what? I love feeding on that energy. So yeah, I love it. And so, yeah, I love still doing signings. Awesome. Well, Marty, we want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been absolute pleasure Mm -hmm. to talk with you again. (laughs) Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book, Claire's Lost Secret, the first in uh, your trilogy, I guess we'll call it the Lord Byron trilogy, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, Thank you. Lord Byron trilogy. <laughs> so until hey, so congratulations, and, and you know, for until we see book two, I'd like to you know see if we can uh, maybe talk to you over book two and kind of just follow the trilogy as it as it goes along. I would love that. Absolutely. So, all right, you enjoy. <laughs> Thank you, we'll John. talk to you soon. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> bye. All right, bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Marty Ambrose, and the book is called Claire's Last Secret. Make sure you visit MartyAmbrose.com for more information on all of her works and, of course, this book. Uh, we're going to take a short break to be back with our next guest, Eric Anderson, to talk about his book, Anubis, uh, which is going to be, like I said, it's, gonna, it's a military thriller, so much different than what we have here, uh, Thriller on the Edge of the Seat, that we have, and this is another trilogy with the first book in the um, in the series being called Osiris. So you might see a trend here: Osiris, Anubis. Uh, you never know. So until uh, so we're gonna get him on in just a second. So until then, listen to this. Again, everybody, want to welcome you after the break. I want to thank you all for joining us, and we want to transition into our our very special guest, um, uh, again, author Eric Anderson. And this book is called Anubis, and it is the second in his trilogy series. Like I said, the first is Osiris. 
and it is a very explosive, um, you know, military thriller. I mean, everything involved in this. Uh, Eric's background, I'm going to have to have him read it to you because it's very, very extensive in the world of, um, you know, uh, being, you know, a retired member of the U.S. intelligence community. You're getting a book and a series here that is coming from a place of factual. He, he kind of knows, he, he knows his shit, let's just say that. So, Eric, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? Hey, John. Good to be here. You yeah, know, say, my mother tells me that I'm a failed academic. You know, I, I couldn't <laughs> stay working in the university. And so I, went to I, think, I, don't know. I think you're a little more than that, but we'll go with that. I mean, like I said, the best way to just for me to kind of say it, I, I mean, in one word is that you just really know your shit when you're writing about this in your books. Let's just put it that way. So, thank you. Well, but, you know, the, it, it helps to have lived it. It does, and you've definitely, you've definitely lived it for quite some time, and that's the exciting part when, you know, whenever I kind of talk to people and they're always looking for books, and I'm like, you know, I go, don't forget to check out the bio of the author to make sure that it's not a lawyer writing a medical thriller, because then you might not get what you're looking for. <laughs> so, you know, you might want to make sure that the author kind of has a little bit of knowledge about the subject matter that he's writing, and of course you do here with your book Anubis, which is the second in in your trilogy series. So give us a little bit about Anubis, and then, of course, take us back, you know, maybe through Osiris and, and into, uh, you know, your your series that you have so far. Sure. So I've had this uh, misfortune in life of having to go live in Baghdad and Riyadh and all over the Middle East, uh, which I, I wouldn't recommend to anybody. It's not uh, my idea of a vacation spot. Uh, but it gives you a perspective on how things fit together. And what what I had an opportunity to do was to take the intelligence community and plug in with the operations community. I've, I've done both sides of the house. Uh, and that's what you're getting within the series as it comes across. So the trilogy picks up on my experiences, my background, and then the ability to bring that story to where the rise of the Islamic State has come from. And that's what Anubis is doing, and, and Anubis should cause the reader to lose sleep. And I, and I don't say that lightly uh, in the sense that it, it is how the Islamic State survives after you take away their physical properties and you're left just to deal with them in the uh, computer world. And the way that they contact people, the way that they set up the organizations, and the way that they carry out actions against various Western targets uh, is... I, I find, at least I find worrisome, and I think that my counterparts in the intelligence community still find worrisome. Like we we have a, an ongoing dialogue back and forth between where I live here and the guys in D.C. because they go, "You've thought about this a long time," uh, <laughs> and so it's a it's a it's a nice twist. And you know, here's the here's where you get the characters. And I, and what I'm I'm trying to do is I I want to bring personal color into it. So you're going to get to meet. Uh, Gunnery's Mastery Sergeant Moore, who comes back from the first book, and his counterpart, the, the poor befuddled army major who is trying to survive the uh, exploits of his enlisted counterpart. Uh, and this, this is a, a, a bring people along through, and oh, by the way, you might be in danger of learning something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know when you when you started this, you know when you started the series back in Osiris. And like I, you know, like we were just talking with our last uh, um, author who's writing a, a trilogy too. You know, the, the the first book is always the kind of setup, but the second book, which is what this is, Anubis, is the one that explodes and the shit just goes everywhere. And then, of course, then you got to pick up all the pieces in the third one and kind of bring it all back together, and you know, and bring it in, in, and bring it into a nice little into a nice little um, into a nice little pie again. So. When you were conceptualizing the trilogy and, and using all the stories and all the resources and things that you have, because I know that there's probably so many uh, misconceptions of what it's actually like to, like you said, live and breathe and see the Middle East. I mean, I'm, I know the Muslim community very well. I mean, I work with uh, many people that are Muslim, so I kind of see and, you know, I kind of see different things. How was your construction of the trilogy, you know, is it going the way that you thought or have you had some bumps along the roads that we were like, damn, I, I, it's taken me this way, and so i got to go this way now? You know, I, I have to admit that I had a plot in mind, and that was to go back and look at what happened when the, the prophet Muhammad 
set up and started running his way forward with this new face. And it was the amazing advance from 650 AD to 750 AD when they land up in Madrid that says, here's what you could do if you have got people who have bought your faith, understand where their ideological component is going and what they want to accomplish. And that's what I did with the trilogy. And so you, the first book is intended to, Osiris is intended to, to sort of shock you into, here's the awareness of what's available and what they can do. Anibus gives you an idea of the level of plotting that is available and, the, and how they carry it out on a global scale. And then the third book is Horus, and that will come out in February. And that says, here's how they get to Paris. Um, and it, it is a, an expansion of the caliphate in the way that it operates across the Middle East. And I, 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 I've told people over and over again, I've, I've read the Quran probably more times than you can possibly imagine. And I, I'm not Muslim. I, I'm, I, I also would say that I'm probably agnostic at best. Uh, but that it's shades of gray, not black and white. I'm not trying to depict uh, the, uh, the caliphate as being something evil, nor am I trying to depict it as being something wonderfully beneficent, nor do I find, by the way, that the Western governments have handled things well. Uh, and so that's what I'm trying to give you as you read through this. The, the, the feeling should be, wow, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lost in the sea, sea of characters, and they're all not quite the best people I've ever run into. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the realism that, that you bring in, I mean, unless you kind of, and that's the one thing that, that's also, you know, for, for a reader, unless you've kind of lived it, it's 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 almost mind-boggling hard for someone like me who hasn't been in there to kind of really understand. Holy Toledo! I mean, this is this like really what you know, like kind of what's going on. I mean, how much of it did you have to kind of fictionalize, and how much of it, you know, is like, nope, this is the real deal. Uh, Adam Dunn, who's the publisher, has this conversation with me on a sort of a regular basis, and I said, you don't make this up. You live it, and, and it is these are the people you run into, and it is a cast of characters, and it's a very yeah. strange world, and not one that you and I would normally bump into. I, you know, I, I spent 24 years in it, and I, I, I still occasionally I'll, I'll be sitting down at dinner and we're carrying out a conversation with my parents, and they'll look at me and they, my mother goes, "Do you understand what you just told us?" And I said, "Oh, sorry, I thought you were part of that conversation." So. <laughs> It makes for makes for an amusing set of tales, and I, the, you know, the guys who really I find I, I have a great exchange with are, are some of the other former special operations folks who sit in and they'll ask questions, and I said, well, this is the perspective I brought into it. What'd you get? And that mm-hmm. conversation can be really amusing, but it, it, it's it, it's one of those conversations like inside baseball. You know the the four people at the table understand what they're talking about, and the rest right. of the audience goes, "Oh boy, where where you guys just go?" Uh, it, it is. It makes for a, a different perspective. Yeah, you, you kind of, and, and I'm a big sports person too, so it's a good analogy because you when you're in it, you you know, you always hear people talking about football players when they're talking and watching a football game. They're like, "I watch it differently than a fan does because I played it." So there's things that I notice that you don't notice that I can see if a play works, doesn't work, how things are going, and that's kind of the perspective. But sometimes it, it goes over people's heads, and I'm sure that you have that same problem of going over people's heads, and that's also a challenge when you're writing a fiction book to, to not do that. So how conscious of it are you in your writing just to make sure? And, of course, you have great editors that will help you you know, to do that, but how often do you kind of have to sit there and say, damn, I, I can't, they're not going to get that, so i got to kind of do it this way. <laughs> well, it, it, there's a reason that there's a glossary in the back of the books, uh, and it is because <laughs> you, you want to try to explain to people in, in, in layman's terms. I'm not trying to be derogatory, but it, it's just here's what I'm trying to explain to you, and here's the equipment that we're using. And you you have to remember that. And I I have the, the one young lady who edits for me regularly. She'll call me, and she says, this makes no damn sense to me. And I, I'll sit back and think, I'm like, mm, okay. She goes, could you put it in English? I said, well, it did write in English. She goes, no. Like, 
the kind of English that other people use, not yours. <laughs> yes, I, I do understand the problem, uh, and it, it's it, it's trying to bring forward a very different world so that people can understand both the Islamic side of it, the Christian perspective on it, the military perspective on it, and then the intelligence community and where they weigh into this process. And if you can do that, I find it makes for you know an interesting story as opposed to Mr. Grissom's next law novel. Uh, and that, right. that's that's kind of where I've been trying to push things. Is that I, I want to get away from the, the standard. Here's you know the lawyer who's trying to fight with society, and and give you instead a perspective from people who have served in the desert, or people who are trying to to deal with very different cultural perspectives. And that's where we're we're taking the books. Now, do you get a lot of emails from fans that kind of sit there and there's one topic in general that they kind of say, wow, I really had no idea that it was like that. I thought it was another way until I read your book to kind of understand, oh, so, you know, is there one common thread that you see from fans when they email you like the same kind of thing? Yes, and, and you know what I, I, I really hear frequently is I didn't understand that the Islamic faith had this level of depth. Um, and, and that there was this level of angst within the people who are running it. And it, it, that, I, I find that sort of an interesting observation because, you know, if you, you're watching what's happening, for instance, in the news right now with the Catholic Church and, and the travails that they're suffering with the right. legal system, or you, you watch what happens within the, the Baptist community, it, it, Americans can relate to that fairly readily. What they don't relate to is the, the same things transpire within the Islamic faith. They, you know, these are people. They have the same foibles as the rest of us, and they have the same intellectual struggles as the rest of us. It's just that they practice a different faith. It doesn't make them any better or any worse. Uh, and that, that's the conversation that I get frequently in the email exchanges. That it, it's, wow, I hadn't thought about that, or... I hadn't thought about the fact that, that Mr. al-Baghdadi, who's the, the cow, has got his own personal struggles that he has to work through. And so I, that, that's kind of an interesting interchange. That they said, you know, how, how do you climb into his head? And I said, I spent two years working on the CIA Red Cell, uh, where he, the entire objective with the Red Cell was to work the intelligence problem from a 180-out perspective. And you were taking the same data that all the analysts were looking at and said, no, how about if we tried this for the perspective on it? Uh, and that, that helps when you're trying to write a book is to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And that's the, the conversation that I get as a give and take quite frequently. Yeah, it's almost funny that people don't think that other people, just because of their faith or maybe where they live – we all have the same freaking problems at times. We all have issues. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, we all have problems that we, that we kind of got to work out. And, and that's one of the things that I always just kind of laugh at at times when people are like, oh, I had no idea. And it's like, what, you don't think that they got bills? Or you don't think that they got stuff that they got to handle too? I mean, yeah, I mean, of course they do. But do you, sit, do you see a difference in not just your American readers, but readers outside the world from different perspectives, because I would think that maybe your, you know, European readers uh, would have maybe another, because they've, you know, because just a different community that they might have um, from like the American readers. You know, the the third book that's coming forward, uh, Horace, I had European readers go through because I, I, I actually bring the war ashore in Europe. And they were really very disturbed by what they were picking up. And he says, you know, you have a sense of empathy for a citizenry that we ignore. Um, and, and that I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about a lot. Uh, but they, the French, if you look at the way the French treat the Roma, the gypsies, and you look at the way that the French have treated their Muslim population, and you go back even to the late 90s, the French had riots outside of Paris because of this. There has been this standoffishness that the Europeans say, oh, you're, well, you're welcome to come, but we don't really want you to be part of it. Um, and you're seeing that now in eastern Germany. If you've been watching the press reporting over the last couple of days and the riots that are taking place there and, and the abuse that is taking place with the, the Muslim population being the target, 
that that I didn't factor in initially as part of my here's what the European audience would see out of reading the books. Now I'm getting it, and I I, I get some very interesting comments out of them. And they, they said, you know, you you really have touched upon a nerve here because we didn't contemplate what we were doing when we started the the open arms uh, to the uh, asylum seekers. And then the next thing we know, we have a, a large Muslim population that doesn't fit with the sort of the cultural mores that they, the Europeans are used to living within. Uh, and so it's a very it's a very different reaction than I get from the, the, the American audience. So, and because you weren't busy enough writing this trilogy, I'm going to switch gears. You have another book coming out on October 2nd, you know, I, I guess because you just love to write 24 hours a day. Um and it is called Bite, and it is it is about a subject, um, you know, it's about cyber world, and it's about hacking, and to me, that is the, the, the scary part. I'm not afraid of a nuclear bomb hitting, because if a nuclear bomb hits, I'm evaporated, and, and it's over. I mean, there's nothing to be scared of in that point, but the 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 cyber world and the hacking and, and how that can literally just take things over in a matter of seconds and you're not dead and you have to live through it is more concerning to me. So tell us about your book bite and the world that you've kind of immersed are going to immerse us in to scare the shit out of us with this one. So the, you know, as I told people, I, I don't like to sleep and I like to think about problems that are obviously you don't sleep up because you keep writing. <laughs> and the, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got another one coming on you shortly here. Um, but the the world of bite is the the concept. Instead of thinking a military perspective where you shoot something and it's dead, the the next war will not be what you blow up. It will be what you turn off. And uh, in, in oh, that, I don't think nice. Americans. I don't think Americans have thought about that. Is that it's the here's what happens when you shut off the electricity, and here's what happens when you take away your access to the information that you're used to feeding off of on Facebook or any social media that you're doing, or you manipulate it. And this is what Byte is intended to do, is to go back and say, instead of the Russians playing with our election, we're going to go play with theirs. And I take the audience into the world of Bitcoin and the blockchain. Oh, yeah. And blockchain is the way that you trade Bitcoin. Uh, and so you've, you've got this exchange that's running and there is actually a way, and I, I, I describe it in the book for you, for the person who's trying to manipulate that currency to turn off enough of the blockchain so that you can actually change the valuation and move the transfer currency from point A to point B without anybody else knowing about it. It's tremendously costly in human life uh, because you, you take away, when you shut down the Internet, I don't, I don't think we fully comprehend this within our society. When you turn off the internet or you turn off the power, you take away the resources that all of us have become so accustomed to that it turns into a disaster. So, for instance, if you shut off the power in a city, the casualty rate is somewhere around 5% of the population just simply out of traffic accidents because all the stoplights go out. Yeah. And we don't think about that as a society. We just don't. When, and you take away the communications capabilities and then you have another issue on your hands. And so this is where Byte marches you from, instead of thinking about let, let's manipulate the propaganda that's associated with an election, let's talk about manipulating the physical characteristics that are there and the characters who can actually accomplish it. And that's where I want to bring people with Byte. Um, and you're, you're working 10 years into the future, so spoiler alert, you have President Schumer. Uh, and I, I will let you figure out how we got to President Schumer, and I explain it in the book. But you have a very different set of political characters running around in front of you, and it, it's it, it's all possible. It's just it's very disturbing, uh, and that that's the goal. Yeah, I mean, what you say is so true because if you just look back, like right before the iPhone came out, cell phones were a luxury. Now they're more of a necessity, and it and it happened in such a short amount of time, where if you were to take you know cell service and just turn off, how many people would be totally lost and not know what to do, and the chaos that those <laughs> things would ensue just from something like that. Yeah, no, I I would be one of them. I you know I, I have to I sadly have to admit that I cannot operate a house without the internet running. Uh, 
Um, and I and I have also yeah. fallen victim to uh, the smart speaker syndrome. So you know, it's I love my Alexa. Radio, so it, I love my Alexa. Oh, I, I just know. wish I could set her. I, I, I just wish I could set her to remind me so many times how much she loves me, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I I tell you, I, I I'm sure that the neighbor because you know it, I it's me and my dog live together because I, I I frankly. I run around like a chicken. I, I also am a general contractor, so I, I either I'm, I'm working or I'm working on a book. So the dog comes and talks to me, and then I sit there and talk to the speaker. And I, I, I start, you know, you start to wonder about your sanity after a while. But the, that's what Byte is trying to bring forward: is the the idea that we have transitioned so dramatically as uh, in the overall society, particularly within the Western world and even with the Russian world that your ability to manipulate information based on, on sitting in front of the computer in your house don't need to leave the street anymore. There's, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a very different perspective from what you had in looking at the ISIS campaign within uh, or Osiris and Abbas and Horus. Instead, what we have is a, my, my protagonist is an African-American woman who's confined to a wheelchair uh, who works for CIA. And the only reason she's confined to a wheelchair is that she had a, a very bad motorcycle accident. Um, it's something I can relate to. And so you have this this person who is able to manipulate outside of a realm that we all think about on a, on a daily basis. And it it should frighten you. If it doesn't, you're you're not thinking about what's going on. Yeah, I mean. Like he's, I mean, this scares the hell out of me more than a nuclear bomb. I mean, honestly, I mean, because again, the chaos and what would ensue. Because I think I would rather be dead than have to see how people would rip each other apart um, if if the world was 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 thrust into chaos and, and having to see what that is. But for people who might not understand, it's like how you know how could like when when you're when you're meddling in the elections without physically getting it, and we'll just talk about that since of course you know it's 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 been everywhere, but how can someone you know when they say meddle in the elections besides physically changing votes, how would something like invite when you say you're going to go to Russia work without physically going into like voting booths and changing votes? How would all that kind of happen electronically speaking? Sure. So let, let's take the Russian situation with Byte, and I and I won't spoil the story for people. But the the oligarchs in Russia, the, the rich gentlemen who surround Mr. Putin, have moved their their holdings primarily into uh, cryptocurrency. And if you can get into the system, and it is possible to do it, I, I, you will learn how inside a Byte to do this. You can actually transfer their holdings so that you can strip the wealth. From one and put it into the hands of another, or you can strip the wealth of many of them and put it in the hands of others, and you then change the power dynamic that sits around the man who's running the show. And so you don't, instead of you know what we're we're watching in this discussion as to what transpired during the 2016 election, and then the concerns about what's happening in the 2018 election, instead of manipulating the storyline, what you do instead is you change the finances. And if you did the same thing within the United States, you would have a very different dynamic on your hands with the political structure. Imagine taking the wealth away from the Koch brothers, for instance, and, mm-hmm. and transferring it over to somebody who's sitting on the Democratic side of the election process um, or taking money away from uh, Sheldon Addison. the billionaires who fund, yeah, who fund the, the other side of the election process and move right. it. And so if you if you if you start transferring these funds about and make it available to other people, you're changing the power dynamic, you're changing the storyline, and you then you are able to manipulate really where the the, the propaganda end is going to head. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of being able to change the information that people see, and that's all they see. So they have to make their determinations based off what could be false information or, like you said, propaganda. Sure. Well, you know, this Basically. is this is sort of the, the the sad dynamic that we've run into in this country is that we don't want to subscribe to a newspaper any longer. So you, nobody picks up the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You you go on to Facebook 
and you read yeah. whatever it is that your friends have put up as the, the latest gossip that you should be aware of without any means of being able to source the content or knowing whether or not you're being led down a, a, a fake trail. And it's, it's what I, I think Mr. Trump has picked up on is this concern that we don't trust what we read any longer. And he's just further exacerbated that problem by playing up the idea that it's all just fake news. Um, it, it really, we have got an issue in our hands, and here's what Byte brings you to: is here's how you manipulate it. Uh, and what I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on a book called "They're They're After" right now, and it is looking at the 2028 election and how you change the conversation within the population uh, in the United States uh, by working through the social media content and what kind of storyline you want to plant and doing it at the local level as opposed to doing it at the national level. And, oh, my goodness, can you change the outcomes for what's going to take place? Man, fascinating. You know, it must be, it must be kind of hard sometimes for you to jump from kind of, you, you know, your, your, your trilogy kind of into bite and, and things back and forth because it's kind of it's so much different kind of writing. You, so do you ever get confused with characters and, and how things are going? <laughs> yes, I do. I, I, does, uh, I have to yeah. admit, sometimes I I get lost and you know I'll I'll be thinking about something and start to write it and I go no that's not what I'm actually working on right now. Right. I, I I I tend to compartmentalize so I'll get going on a book and it'll be that's the, the total focus of what I'm doing and I realize that when I'm having a conversation with somebody. All I'm talking about is whatever I'm working on at this point in time and they really don't care. They, <laughs> what what world are you living in at this moment, Anderson? And let's get you back to where we're at in reality. Uh, and so you, you have this sort of endless cycle. And I, I go through piles, you know, for you your listeners who, who want to go into writing, I, I wind up going through piles of books, and I'll read sometimes for three, four days and try to get through whatever the latest literature is on it. And then I realized that this is all I've done, that it's just strictly sitting here plowing through books. And I, and I ruin a book when I read it. I put stickies into them. I got a highlighter going. Yeah. I write all over on the inside of them. And I, I sometimes forget my due to a library book, and then the librarian gets mad at me. But it, it, this is the way that I like to go through and, you know, and catch a story, and then it's in my mind. And while it's running, I'm there. And, I, you know, I understand why you get – John Grisham uh, and some of these other guys who this is all they can talk about because at the moment that's all that's in your brain. That, that's it. Yeah. The rest of the, the world is sort of non-existent. Well, Eric, what's the best place for people to find out more about your information? So the best place to go, I have a, a like everybody else in the world, I have a page on Amazon. Uh, so you can find me, Eric C. Anderson. That's Eric Kurt Anderson. And then the, the place that I really recommend people go to is Done Books, D-U-N-N, books.com. Uh, Adam Dunn is the, the publisher, and he maintains a fabulous website. Uh, and so there's the, the two places you can go to find out where I'm at. Uh, and you can find me, if you go do a search online, you can find me all sorts of places. Yeah. And so, hey, uh, well, we want to thank you so much for coming on, of course. Well, so the book Anubis, which came out in June, that's the second in your trilogy, and then Bite comes out October 2nd, and that's the next uh, suspense horror book you're going to have for us here on that subject matter. Uh, and, again, that book comes out October 2nd. So, Eric, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure to speak with you and wish you nothing but the best, and, and hopefully we'll talk to you uh, down the road. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Absolutely. You enjoy. Bye-bye. Bye. So, again, everybody, we want to thank you all for joining us. What a fabulous show we had. Of course, we want to thank uh, Marty Ambrose for coming on and talking to us about her book, Claire's Last Secret. Uh, and that book is out now. And then, of course, we just talked with Eric Anderson about his book, Anubis, book two in his trilogy series, along with his book, Bite, uh, which comes out October 2nd. And if you are into cyber hacking and, and those kinds of things, again, which scare me worse than bombs blowing up in my house, um, 
then you want to check that out on October 2nd. So, like, like I said at the beginning of the show, two very different authors, two very different perspectives in writing, but things that you should definitely kind of have on your bookshelf, especially, you know, if you are a, a reader in this genre. I mean, these are two authors that, when again, you're looking around saying, wow, well, what can I read next? Well, there you go. No excuses. Go check it out. At least go and check out the site. Read the blurb. See if it's something that you're interested in. And, and you know, and that's all you can ask for is to is to check that out. So, well, we want to thank you all again for joining us. It has been fabulous. Again, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Don't forget to visit KingsingtonBooks.com for more information. Uh, another thing we got coming out is one of our authors, Robert Kadera. He is going to be having his book Midnight Blues is going to be out soon. So make sure that you check out. Um, it's the fourth in his uh, Gabe McKenna series, and that book is called Midnight Blues. So you want to check out that uh, on Amazon. And then we have another one, uh, another book coming out in December from a uh, 17-year-old author. Her name is Bailey Day, and it is called The Amazing Imagination Machine. And when we have more information on that one. We will definitely be putting it on our Twitter. So make sure that you uh, check out uh, that too, and, and for more information. So SuspenseMagazine.com, find out new reviews, new interviews, new articles. We're posting things all the time out there to help better you with your reading selection. So until next time, everybody, say thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye.